By contrast, an appellate court's job is to weave the tapestry of the common law. Welcome to the California Appellate Podcast, a discussion of timely trial tips and the latest cases and news coming from the California Court of Appeal and the California Supreme Court. And now your hosts, Tim Cole and Jeff Lewis. Welcome, everyone. I am Jeff Lewis. And I'm Tim Kowal, California Department of Podcasting license flagged for review. In each episode of the California Appellate Law Podcast, we provide trial attorneys with legal analysis and practice tips from an appellate perspective. Both Jeff and I are appellate specialists, but we split our practices pretty evenly between trial courts and appellate courts. And on this podcast, we try to offer some nitty gritty perspective on preparing your case for appeal. And welcome to episode 32 of the podcast. So in this episode, uh, we're going to take a look at mediation and settlement during an appeal. And I don't know about you, Jeff, but it, to me, it seems like appeal should be an ideal time to bring up settlement because you brought in a, an appellate specialist and they tend to be objective and the whole process tends to slow things down. It seems like a great time to talk about settlement. But just in my experience, you know, parties tend to get their positions kind of entrenched and it hasn't been as uh, not accessible as maybe I uh, otherwise would have thought it would be. But maybe that's just my experience. So for a more expert look at the process of mediating and settling on appeal, we turn to the expert, John Derrick. John's a certified appellate specialist who has litigated about 175 appeals and writs, including about 25 that have resulted in published decisions. John primarily represents private individuals and privately owned businesses. John received his law degree from the University of California at Berkeley, and he received his undergraduate degree from Oxford, graduating with first-class honors. John was the 2014 and 2015 chair of the California State Bar's Standing Committee on Appellate Court, and from 2011 to 2013, he served as editor-in-chief of California Litigation, the journal of the litigation section of the state bar. In addition, John is an appointed member of the Second District Court of Appeals Mediation Panel, and he serves as a settlement master for the Santa Barbara Superior Court. John is also a frequent lecturer on appellate topics. And just a bit of interesting trivia about John's background before he entered the law John founded, operated, and sold two specialized information publishing businesses in the U.S. and the U.K., one of which was acquired by one of the world's largest publishers. John has also served as a special advisor to the Energy Secretary in the U.K. Cabinet. So we are honored to have you with us today, John. Thanks for being here. Well, thank you for having me. So now that I've I've covered all of the the real braggy stuff that you're too modest to say yourself. So tell us a little something more about what the actual John Derrick is and, and what your practice is like. Well, I'm like many appellate specialists. I'm a solo practitioner. It's just a way of life that I that I enjoy. The, I, li- I like the flexibility that it gives me, both in terms of where I do the work, what work I choose to do, and so forth. I do mainly civil cases, but about a third of my workflow in a typical year is criminal, although probably less than a third of my income, because the criminal work isn't always terribly well paid, because the criminal cases I do are appointed. I'm on the on, on the CAP panel in the second district and the ADI one in the fourth district. And why do you and, do that? If it's uh, if it's not paid well, do you do it because you enjoy it? Do you do it because it's a public service? A little of both? Public service makes it probably sound a little too saintly. I, I, I do enjoy the cases. I think on the whole, my criminal clients are sometimes some of the easiest to deal with, actually. A lot of them do have mental health issues, because sadly, you know, that's just the way of the world. I mean, a lot of the cases are, 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 you know, people do kind of things which are just no 
same person would do. But where they're kind of easy to deal with is that they have fairly realistic expectations often, and also very appreciative of one's services. Whereas sometimes, you, you know, your over-inflated ego who's running some LLC or whatever might kind of think that they can buy outcomes, which obviously you and I know litigants can't do. So, so I, enjoy the, I enjoy the criminal cases. I, you know, they're intellectually quite challenging sometimes. I mean, sentencing is kind of like dealing with the, with the tax code. It's, it's arcane. Yeah. yeah. John, I don't think Tim has ever gotten a handwritten note from jail. I did a lot of cap-appointed work okay. from the beginning of my appellate career. And yeah, representing Fortune 200 clients, uh, you, you save them $10 million, you might get a thank you email. But when you get a handwritten note from jail saying, uh, God bless you, Mr. Lewis, and you're doing the Lord's work, it's gratifying. It is. It is. And they're always handwritten. And they, they're, they're usually written in pencil. And because they, I think they actually charge prisoners by the sheet of paper, they, 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 they recram the pencil writing onto every square millimeter of the page on both sides. But as Jeff says, those notes are good and even better are the ones which aren't all that common, but but in the nature of the work. But, you know, after you get them out of jail, if you do get them out or out of prison, those ones are especially heartening. I remember one client who she shouldn't have been there. I can't remember what it was. It's just some big mistake and early in December one year, I actually got on the phone with the AG's office down in San Diego and said, we've got to fix this. And, and amazingly, because they don't normally do this sort of thing, they, they agreed to a stipulated reversal. And we actually got her out just in time to, to be at home with her kids for Christmas. So, I mean, you know, where, where do you get that sort of feeling wow. in, in civil practice? Yeah. Well, what judging by your accent and by some of the points on your on your resume, you're not uh, originally from around these parts. What uh, what brought you to the U.S. originally, and what brought you to the law, and and then what brought you around to appeals, and then mediating appeals, and and give okay. us the, the back of the dust jacket version of it, if you will. Yeah. What what brought me to the U.S. originally was my former work, as you mentioned earlier. I, I had a little niche publishing business. And we, we set up a, a little offshoot of that out on, in the US. It was out in uh, Westchester County near, near New York. And so I started, started spending time there. And then when we sold that business, without boring with all the detail, I ended up taking back that little American bit of it and running that and slightly changing it or whatever. So, so business is what started me here. And then I guess marriage is what uh, kept me here. After I sold the American business, when I was, I guess, in my late 30s or around about 40 or whatever, I found myself uh, without a day job. And so I decided to do what I'd, I'd actually always intended to do in England, but never did do, which was to become a lawyer. So, okay, so you, um, were, you were pushing 40 at the time you uh, made I was, the switch. Into- yeah, I mean, I, I, I've been practicing law for 20 years now. So yeah, by the time I took the bar exam, I was kind of, I don't know, I mean, I'm 65 now, so you can do the math. And and and, and why did I do that? Well, in some ways, if you compare what I do now with what I used to do in the past, there are some similar kind of intellectual gears at work in as much as previously my job used to be to take very arcane, not intrinsically fascinating information and to present it in a manner which made it very digestible, a compelling read, generally interesting and time-saving. And 
although my role in those days was more analytical rather than persuasive, although I did do some persuasive writing as well, particularly in my year year working in politics. But 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 in some ways, it's actually a lot of those things I used to do translate well into appellate law because here we take a. A, a kind of mountain of information in a record, some of which isn't all that interesting, you know, at face value. And we try and condense it down into a brief, which is efficient, reader-friendly, uh, a compelling read, and with, you know, as an advocate, also persuasive. So in, in some ways, there's a fair bit in common with what I used to do and what I spend my days doing now. As for the mediation bit, I, I've always, I suppose, in my life, been a bit of a kind of a mediator in the sense of it is in my nature to mediate in a, in, a, in a way in all sorts of contexts. I mean, not just professionally. And so from your from your experience in publishing, you you got to learn that your reader's time is precious. Yeah, definitely. That's something we definitely try to remember uh, as attorneys. And sometimes we feel entitled to our judge's time, but they may have to read it, but they don't have to like it. Yes, uh, ab- absolutely. Totally. Well, tell us about just another one last question by way of background. Tell us about one case that you had that should have settled but didn't. Gosh, one case that I had as a mediator or as a lawyer or either. Either. Uh, well, th- there's one that comes to mind, which I was going to actually talk about possibly later if we get onto the topic of whether courts should be in the business of encouraging mediation, appellate courts, that is. But, but Yeah, we'll loop back around just to, it. to But to give you a heads up as to what that case is, it was one about 12 years ago. It was an employment case, a very charged one, where an African-American principal sued an Islamic school that had hired her for wrongful termination and various other forms of employment wrong. And it, it, it was a it, it was a case, I think, that should have settled. But we can talk more about what the court thought of it a bit later if we get to that topic. All right. Yeah, I think we, we will get to that topic. So let's let's get right into talking about mediating and settling cases during an appeal. So our attorney listeners know how to settle a case and the importance of trying to settle cases. And But what's the big thing that attorneys ought to know about settling cases on appeal that is maybe a little bit different from settling them at the trial level? Well, one thing is that mediations on appeal are much less common. I would say that most cases in the trial courts go through either a mediation or the minimum a settlement conference in some portion while they're being litigated. Whereas I would say that a relatively small number of appeals are mediated. And what's more, there's no such thing as a mandatory settlement conference in any of the courts of appeal. So if you want to do it, you have to take the initiative yourself. So that's one difference. Um, another difference is do you, that- th- Do you think, uh, sorry to, to interject there, but I wanted to ask you about a mandatory settlement conference. Do you think there ought to be mandatory settlement during appeal? No, I don't really think so. Because I think it would be not a good use of people's time because some cases are simply not capable of being settled at that point. I mean, the options are too binary. I mean, there's no meaningful middle course. So, so even if the courts were pushing harder at the appellate level, you still think that, that settlements at the appellate level are going to be less common? Than at the trial level? Yes, I think they probably are. I mean, because, because this goes into the second difference, which is that there's a fundamental power shift for obvious reasons. Most cases that go on appeal, the case is over in the trial courts. Now, I know there are exceptions to that with certain types of interlocutory appeal, but for the most part, you know, slap appeals being a 
a good example. But for the most part, you've got somebody who's got a judgment and you've got somebody who, you know, has got a judgment against them. And that, and often the parties haven't always got realistic expectations. Sometimes the party that lost in the trial court doesn't quite realize how big a mountain they have to climb and maybe impossible a mountain they would have to climb. Likewise, sometimes the successful party in the trial court doesn't realize that some trial court outcomes, especially though where the case was struck down in its infancy, as with a demur, that, that you can actually have fairly fragile victories. So you've got expectations that on both sides of the case, which don't always lend themselves to settlement, and that can make it a challenge to settle them. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. it takes, for example, quite a, quite a sort of, a, imagine you're, a def, I don't know, an insurance defense lawyer, and you've just sort of seen off some plaintiff who wanted, you know, a million dollars in damages or whatever, and the, and the plaintiff's got absolutely nothing. You know, a, lo, a lot of defense lawyers are going to be a bit wary about going to their, to their carrier or to their client and say, look, we just won this case. Would you mind kind of writing out a check for 100,000? I mean, you know, people just often say, huh, why would I want to do that? Right, right. And to your point about the power shift that happens, usually right at the time, right before an appeal starts, i.e. the judgment, you know, you say, you know, one side sometimes feels invincible and the other, uh, the other side might feel completely demoralized. So for that reason, how important do you think it is if you're the, if you're representing the appellant, let's say the, the losing defendant on appeal, how important is it to get a stay of enforcement of judgment, maybe even uh, before initiating any kind of settlement dialogue? Well, I mean, people might want stays for all sorts of reasons. I'm, I'm not aware of a case that I can recall where people kind of specifically sought out a stay because they wanted to kind of keep the status quo kind of uh, in place because they wanted to mediate. But I mean, Often, though, you know, there are very good reasons why you, why often you, you, you want to stay. Some stays are fairly easy to obtain if you are automatic. Some require putting up a lot of money. But it depends on the type of judgment. And also depends on the timing of the appellate mediation. Most, but by no means all, appellate mediations, in my experience, take place relatively early on in the process when the judgment is still fairly fresh and when and, and before briefing has taken has taken place, and there are pros and cons of the timing, but, right. it, but certainly I would say that it can make things easier to settle a case if kind of there aren't kind of while you're trying to mediate the case, kind of I don't know bailiffs uh, you know actively removing furniture from somebody's house in order to collect on a judgment, right, or just sweeping bank accounts. Uh, yeah, indeed, you might feel that you have no if you're the if you're the prevailing plaintiff with a money judgment, you might feel that you have no incentive to settle. I can just start wiping. Bank accounts and get some easy cash that way. Well, that's that. That's right. I, I personally, as an appellate lawyer, when I'm representing a respondents, I, I frankly love it when if the if the appellant bonds an appeal because it means, I mean, if one wins, collection is easy and you don't have to go through all the kind of nasty stuff about collecting. And, and you, you can, can stop you, wondering you, about whether you're going to collect. So, so, so bonded appeals, I mean, far from being annoying to me, I, I regard as the best. Have you ever seen a, a personal surety bond? You know, one of those creatures where the defendant appellant just finds a couple of people who will vouch for him and say, yeah, I'm, I'm good for I'm it. I'm good for it. <laughs> yeah, I have to say, I wonder who actually signs those. And and also, I wouldn't be, I've never actually, have you have you ever come across a case where that, that's actually happened? Because I haven't. Yep. <laughs> okay. I haven't personally. 
but how good how good is the surety because even if somebody's good for the money unless they're actually putting up the money you still then have to go after them and collect right yeah, essentially right. they become like, co-judgment debtors yeah it's, it's, exactly it's like uh the worst of both worlds it gives the uh, benefit of a bond to the appellant but doesn't give the uh, surety of collection to the respondent so precisely the worst of both worlds. yeah terrible yeah exactly i don't get too involved hands-on in arranging bonds. I normally try and have, you know, the trial lawyer do that. I try not to have anything to do whatsoever with the collection and enforcement of judgments. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, that that can be a taxing part of the work if you start, start getting involved in judgment uh, collection and defense. One of the other, John, I wanted to ask you about one of the practices that I employ when I am looking to, uh, when I'm representing an appellant, uh, a defendant who has, uh, let's say, a defendant who has a money judgment against against it, I want to try to start rebuilding some leverage. So that's why I asked you about trying to get a stay of enforcement, because then that kind of takes a little bit of the wind out of the sails of the of the prevailing plaintiff that they're not going to see any money for a couple of years while the appeal shakes out. Right. And, and another thing I like to do is is maybe file a new trial motion or a, or a motion for JNOV, even if I don't need to to in order to uh, preserve issues. I sometimes like to file them just to give the uh, the respondent a preview of some of the holes they have, some of the vulnerabilities in their judgment to let them know, A, you're not going to see any money for a couple of years because we've stayed the enforcement of judgment. And B, you've got to worry about some real problems uh, on appeal. You might come out without uh, the judgment that you think you have now. What do you think about that strategy? Well, I also like post-trial motions when I'm representing appellants. I think you make an interesting point there about the show of force of course, it can go two ways. If you're, if it turns out that your post-trial motion isn't all that strong, it can actually be, be, it could be, it can send a signal that actually your appeal won't be that strong. But one of the reasons, the two, the two main reasons why I always kind of like it if there are post-trial motions, when I'm a lawyer at least, other than the points you've just made, are that it fleshes out responses from the other side. So when you're working on an appellant's opening brief you might have some indication of what some of the responses might be that you can uh, try and preempt. And also, if you like, a post-trial motion is like a parting you know, memorandum from the trial lawyer to the appellate lawyer about, you know, this is my take on the case. And obviously coming in, you're going to apply your own judgment as to what the issues are and how they should be argued. But I find it's quite useful, really, to have the the the, the trial lawyer go through the exercise of preparing such a motion. And it can also be an opportunity to flesh out the record a bit. I, I agree. I, I, love if, I love the post-trial motions for that reason, written by the trial attorney. Let me offer this, though. If if as the appellate attorney, I'm coming in and I, I might want to take the arguments a little bit a different way on appeal, I might want to have some input in those post-trial motions motion so that we kind of start the pivot because I don't want the last shot in the trial court to be, you know, telling the story of the case a completely different way than I in, than I intend to tell it on appeal. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree with that. I mean, I don't tend to get very hands-on with post-trial motions in the sense of drafting anything for a whole bunch of reasons. But 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 I agree that it can be useful to discuss the issues if you're already involved in the case at that stage. 
Now, a few moments ago, you mentioned that appellate courts have their own mediation programs. I wondered in your in your experience dealing with those mediation programs, what's your what's your take on them? How successful are they? Can they be improved? Should they be expanded? Because only a couple of courts have them. Do you think more ought to have them? Yes, they started up in the first district, and it was a little over twenty years ago. And I remember actually because it was actually while I was at Berkeley, and I actually. Did, did some coursework about mediation and actually remember writing a paper about appellate mediation back then, talking about this new program the first district has. More recently, they, they subsequently dropped their program. And I'm not sure why they did so, but I think it may have been for budgetary reasons. So probably as long ago as maybe 10 years ago. The As far as I'm aware, the well, the second district certainly has a program because on its panel, I believe the fifth district has a program. I'm not aware of the fourth district one. There are some courts which kind of have have programs. Like, for example, and you might know more about this than me, but if you go to 4-2 in Riverside, I'm not sure that they've got a program which is kind of like the one in the second district where they send out notices saying, do you want to be part of our mediation uh, program? But they but they will make themselves available. I've had a couple of mediations there as a lawyer. You have to one seek it out. By the, by, by the, uh, with the presiding justice, uh, Justice Ramirez, actually conducting the mediation himself. Orange County. What, what, do, you, what do you think about that? I was going to get to that later, but you, you mentioned it. Just uh, having one of the justices, I, I would assume that Justice Ramirez would not sit on the panel at that point. In, 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 indeed, he, he, he wouldn't. I mean, you know, some people prefer having judges or justices as their mediators. And, and they can, of course, be very effective mediators. It depends in part on the type of mediation that is called for, whether you want a kind of very directive mediation where somebody's going to kind of tell you you're going to lose this appeal or you're going to win this appeal or whatever, or whether you want a more kind of diplomatic one where, you know, maybe in that case, a presiding justice who's used to calling the shots, you know, may not be be the best person. So I don't think there's necessarily a, a one size all, you know, what, what is the best way to do it. But 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 I can certainly imagine in some cases the parties might be on their best behavior if there was an appellate justice conducting the mediation. And maybe that could be conducive to bringing about settlement. Who knows? Yeah, maybe the justice could leave it leave it ambiguous whether he or she intends to be on the panel. Well, indeed. No, I, 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 I'm not aware of any, of any litigants. court which would, would ever have have somebody mediating and then being on the panel. I mean, it'd be an interesting idea, but I, I just don't think it happens. I wouldn't imagine it would happen. Why do you think some courts uh, implement the, the programs and others don't? Well, an interesting question, because there, there, there are some courts, when they when they talk about it, make it out that it's kind of, it's an efficiency, that taking cases off the calendar is a good thing, because, you know, that way they can get to the remaining cases more quickly and, you know, just get through their workload. So it's a workload-saving mechanism to some. Other courts might kind of see it as their mission to promote settlement, just like uh, trial courts see it as part of their mission to promote settlement. Is that yet, a, that's interesting. Uh, I wasn't aware that they saw it as a mission. Is that a mission that is set forth legislatively somewhere, or is that? Is that well, no, uh, it is. 
isn't, and, it, and it's a controversial one to the extent that there is such a mission, because there, there is a school of thought that says that appellate courts should not be in the settlement promoting business, since their job, unlike the job of trial, the job of a trial court is to resolve a dispute. That's why, why they're there. And if you can do so with, with settlement, you know, all the, all the better. Why drag, why, why drag people through trial if you can get it done in an afternoon in a, in a, in a suite of conference room? But by contrast, an appellate court's job is to weave the tapestry of the common law. And there, there is a school of thought that if appellate courts are in the business of actively promoting settlement, they are not only acting outside of their core mission, but they're actually doing something to undermine that mission. For example, if you could, it, it would seem ridiculous to imagine that the California Supreme Court would have a mediation program. I mean, why would it do that? Because you grant review because this is an important an unsettled issue of law. But then you say, oh, and by the way, would you try to settle your case? And that way we don't have to decide this important and unsettled issue of law. I mean, it sounds ridiculous. It'd be even more ridiculous at the US Supreme Court. But you could argue, and I'm not saying I'm necessarily arguing this, but, but you know, playing at least in part devil's advocate, you could argue that it is also slightly ridiculous for an, an intermediate court of appeal to do that, because you know there are cases which you know ought to be ought to be uh, decided, and the, and the and courts of appeal aren't in the resolution business per se; they're in the lawmaking business. Right. No, it's uh, it's interesting because it got me thinking that you know we have our political branches that are in the business of making compromises, and all of all of economic life is about making compromises. Uh, the the courts are the one place we can go to get a definitive ruling. Is it black or is it white? Is it up or is it down? And if the courts are now saying, well, we don't really like having to make those calls are hard. Can't we just compromise like every other aspect of our life? It seems like uh, we're being robbed of the one place we're supposed to get certainty out of uh, of our transactions. And just to give you one kind of vignette or war story, it's actually that case I mentioned earlier, that employment case. We we went to oral argument on that case. And I think it was still when uh, this was in our Orange County at 4-3, and I think they were still in their old building, or maybe they just moved, I can't remember, but this was kind of 10 or so years ago, maybe longer actually. And and then about, you know, the court no doubt had got its draft opinion, as it always does, kind of, you know, in front of it, but it obviously didn't like having to decide the case. And about halfway through oral argument, the acting presiding justice, who's no longer on the court, but was, you know, one of their their finest, I got to know him quite well by serving on a board with him over a few years, he, he, he said, you know, isn't there some way in which you guys can just settle this case? And then he immediately sort of corrected himself saying, oh, no, you know, maybe I shouldn't have said that. But he, but he sort of came back to it a bit more. And they then did something which I've never actually come across before. They said, OK, we'll have a court of appeal mediation laid on for you. And they either then didn't submit the case at the end of oral argument or they unsubmitted it. But they, they arranged this post-oral argument mediation at the Court of Appeal. And the mediator there was one of their senior research attorneys who, as I recall, you know, hadn't worked on that particular case, but was no doubt briefed on it by by colleagues, I, I would imagine. 
And, you know, he did his best to, to settle the case, but it did not, it did not settle. And then this was, this was, this brings into a related issue about the people who, the people who don't like appellate mediations because it interferes with the core mission, sometimes also don't like the concept of unpublished opinion because oh, you're either deciding or, or you're not. And there was actually, there used to be a professor at Berkeley whose name I, I think I'm forgetting, but who, who's very keen on both of those issues. And he, he was dead against appellate mediation when it was starting up in, in the first district. And he and he had this thing about, about unpublished opinions and also about depublication of opinions as well. He, so he had a number of issues. But, but, but in this particular case, as well as trying to settle the case through a mediation, the Court of Appeal in, in, in Orange County, they, they then put what really should have been a published decision because it you know, it, it needed to be a published decision because if they were going to take a particular view, you know, it ought to be a published decision. But they did it unpublished because they, they just didn't like the case and they didn't really want to decide the case. It, yeah. it had to do, the whole issue had to do with the use of certain testimony, expert testimony that the trial court had allowed in that really uh, essentially went into kind of stereotyping certain cultural groups yeah. And I was arguing that it should not have been allowed in. The trial court let it in and the Court of Appeal figured out a way of affirming, but not liking it. Well, since you since you stepped on the, the landmine of unpublished decisions, we'll take a brief diversion here and I'll ask you your opinion on, on unpublished decisions. Is it is that is that a reasonable policy or is it just mischief making as as I might aver? Well, I think unpublished opinions for the court are necessary because it'll be too much work to make every case a published opinion. I mean, that's, that, I think, is the, 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 general, the general view. That, they, that I mean, you know, the Ninth Circuit have figured out a way of, of dealing with this, where they put out their, what do they call them, memorandum dispositions, which kind of don't even really try to be like opinions. They're more like minute orders. And, and maybe the California Court of Appeal should do the same, which is, look, if you're going to do a proper opinion, why not have it published? Or if you think it's too boring a case to make it worth doing an opinion, put out, you know, the appellate equivalent of a minute order. Right. They're out there. So don't pretend that they're not out there. Yeah. But if, if the court hypothetically were to decide, you know what, the, the judicial business is too hard. Let's just get into the, the mediation and settlement business. They got the they got the tool to do it. They can just... They they could just mediate cases and just publish them as unpublished decisions, and uh, no one would be the wiser. Indeed, that's uh, the same thing occurs to me with with depublication. Uh, you know, what is someone to draw from that other than the Supreme Court said, "Well, this is not a good uh, a good rule," but we're just going to let the we're going to still le- let the parties deal with the consequences of this bad rule. We just don't want anyone anyone else to. Exactly. Well, let me ask you about this scenario that that probably every attorney has heard about at some time or another. There's a few of these kinds of instances where the parties settle their case during an appeal, which is great news for everybody. Unfortunately, the settlement only comes a very short time before oral argument. And by that time, maybe the panel is just raring to go, wants to hear argument and render its opinion and tells counsel when they learn of the settlement, sorry, we want to decide this case now. So get on with your argument. We're not accepting the settlement. We're not going to be dismissing the case now. What is the court's practice of deciding cases that have already been settled? Tell us about how the courts really feel about settlement. Do they think it's Um, really better for the litigants or they just want to reduce their workloads? Yeah. I personally have never been involved in a case either as a mediator or as a lawyer 
where the party said, okay, we've settled it, can we go now? And the court said, you're staying, we, we want to argue this. I mean, I imagine the courts could do so. I did myself have a case only a few months ago where, in which I was a lawyer and where we've been trying to settle the case for literally nine months and it just couldn't happen. I mean, but then about two weeks before oral argument, the, uh, the discussion started up again. And I wanted immediately to send out the notice you sent to the uh, Court of Appeal saying, excuse me, we're, we're talking about settlements, so you may want to not, you know, devote too much time to this case right now. But there was some discussion that we shouldn't send it immediately because it was unclear as to whether the case, whether the settlement discussions would you know, gain traction. So I think we took a f- just a few days before sending off the notice, although personally I wanted to send it off earlier. I suspect by then the court had probably already worked, finished its work on the case. But anyway, we sent the notice off and then I think it was literally a day or two days, but I think it actually just one day before oral argument that finally the case did settle. And I, you know, sent a letter into the court or made a call. And I was kind of a bit nervous thinking, you know, this was in Division 7 of the Second District. I was thinking, gosh, you know, that must be really annoying to them. And I wonder whether we're going to get some snarky reply, whether they're going to tell us, you know, they they want us to appear at oral argument anyway. But in fact, I just got a nice um, phone call back from the clerk saying that we were off calendar or whatever. But it must be incredibly annoying to a court to have that happen. But to some extent, it's in the nature of the business. What what are you meant to tell people? Look, you can't settle a case. You, you, You kind of uh, you know, you're past the point of, of of no return. I mean, that doesn't sound reasonable, right? Would the would the court welcome notices from the parties that look, we're we're talking about settlement. Maybe it'll happen. 50-50 chance. I mean, generally speaking, I'm very pro sending notices if you've got a slight reason for doing so. The, the problem is that sometimes the trial lawyers get all upset because they think that, you know, if you send out a notice, you're going to send some signal to the other side that, that you're keener and, and something like that. And so you can you can run into a bit of pushback. But I mean, I think as a as a, as a basic courtesy to the court, you, you should tell them the, at the earliest sniff of, of serious settlement discussion. Well, can yeah, I just so- add one thing to that? In that particular case, I was on a personal level kind of I mean, I think it was right that the case settled, but on a purely personal, selfish level, I felt like it was as though I was kind of reading a book and somebody had ripped out the last couple of pages. And so I was deprived of the of the ending because I think this was a case in which there could well have been a reversal. It was an interesting case, a, a, a clear wobbler in terms of possible outcomes. And so, you know, I, I, I was disappointed at, the, at never getting to read the opinion. Right. There was, I wanted to read something to you. I, I was reading this interview with a senior judge, Clifford Wallace, and he had this comment about a mediation program that he installed in the Ninth Circuit years ago. And it uh, made me think of you. I wanted to ask you about it. So here's, here's the quote. Judge, uh, senior judge Clifford Wallace says, quote, we made a lot of changes. It has nothing to do with how I write my opinions. We are far more efficient than any other court of appeals. The Second Circuit has picked up on it now. We developed case management and mediation in the appellate court. No one thought about settling the cases once there was a judgment. I hired a mediator. We started doing win-win mediations. The idea was developed by Fisher and Urey at the Harvard Business School once we mediated 1,400 cases in a year. We had a way to get people to talk. 
our data shows that there's no distinction at all as to what types of cases settle. It's the lawyers and the parties who are the key variables. We started the program about 15 years ago. It's been a great help. So that uh, w- where I made my voice kind of ominous is is the quote I wanted to ask you about. V half ways to get you to talk. And well, wonder- yeah, and and the the Ninth Circuit certainly does have ways because you're pretty well told there that you need to go through a, a mediation screening at least. They do have an excellent program, unlike the system in the in the state appellate courts. The Ninth Circuit has got its in-house program. They have, I'm not quite sure how many there are, but at least several and, you know, maybe half a dozen, maybe even more full-time staff mediators. I've found them very, very good, actually, when I deal with them. But, but, but there, I suppose, you know, earlier we were talking about mandatory settlement conferences, and I said there were none. I suppose, in a way, that is a bit of an exception, because you do have to show up on a conference call at the Ninth Circuit, as as far as I can best remember. But but they kind of call it a screening. And so it wouldn't be like a full-on half-day session. It might just be a like a 20-minute or 30-minute call. And if the parties are saying, you know what, we don't think this is going to go very far, you know, you're then free to go. But 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 nonetheless, it does put you into a system where you're at least forced to start thinking about mediation. And maybe that wouldn't be a a bad thing in the state courts as well, unless you take this view that they shouldn't be doing this for the reasons we were talking about earlier. And obviously, the the, uh, senior judge you quote there, he thought that settling cases was part of their mission, but others might think differently. You know, I had this this story that I heard, and I, I can't remember where I heard it, so I'm I'm a little bit nervous to share it because I, I don't know if I'm violating podcast privilege here, but I'll, I'll go ahead and share it anyway. I, I heard a story from an attorney who was, who was mediating or, you know, involved in mediation of a case pending appeal. And there was a retired judge or justice who was doing the mediation and the, the, the settlement discussions were stalemated. And the mediator came in and, and said, that, well, you know, it just so happens that I talked to my good friend Justice so-and-so, who happens to be on the panel with a draft opinion in your case. Now, of course, I can't show it to you, but, oh, oh, excuse me one moment. I have, I have a phone call. I'll, I'll, I'll uh, take this outside and leaves the, leaves the printout on the table there. The, uh, the attorney and the client you know, look at each other. Should we? Shouldn't we? Of course we should. They take a peek. They see the writing on the wall. Lo and behold, that afternoon, the case settled. Now, does that go back to, to Judge Wallace's V half ways to get people to talk? Uh, well, um, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure whether Judge Wallace thought of that particular method. <laughs> it, might, it might indeed be a fairly effective one, but I, I think that might be a somewhat uh, unique unique occurrence. Of course, when the Ninth Circuit started their program, that was back in the days when the average time from the filing of the notice of appeal to the decision coming out was kind of well over two years. They, they were terribly, terribly backlogged at one point. And so I think one of the reasons why they were so proactive in, in, in developing their program was that they felt they just needed to do something about this case backlog. These days, and most of my work is in state court, but uh, the last time I was in the Ninth Circuit not too long ago, it seemed to go fairly quickly, the whole thing. But, uh, but nonetheless, they, 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 still, they still have their program. All right. Well, let's, do you have any other, we, we talked about some practical tips for our listeners here about managing expectations. We talked about, you know, when you, when you're on appeal, there's going to be one party who's flying high and one who's in the doldrums and there's kind of a, a respective counsel need to get 
both of them to come to the middle a little bit. So there's a managing expectations imperative at the beginning. I suggested maybe consider getting a stay of enforcement of the judgment just to kind of bring things to a halt. Uh, it might also help in the in the task of managing expectations. We talked in uh, about looking into court-provided mediation programs, and and you you talked about how important it is to notify the court progress in settlement discussions, because if you get too close to the oral argument date, a settlement might not get you anywhere because the case might not, might still be decided if the panel's fixing to do that. Any other nuts and bolts tips that listeners should be aware of and, and best practices to get a case settled or get it into mediation pending appeal? Well, there is one view that although joint sessions in mediations are increasingly uncommon in trial court mediations. There is a view that you should have a different sort of approach in an appellate mediation, because with most appellate mediations, the case is at an end in the trial court. And so uh, you're not going to be you know, conducting discovery the week after the mediation or something like that. You're in a whole different era. And so there's an argument that basically the party should just have a more kind of transactional, business-like approach by all sitting around a table, figuring out a, 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 a sensible way forward, which is better for both sides than litigating the matter in the Court of Appeal for the next year. I can see the value of that, but I personally find when I conduct appellate mediations that there is a great reluctance on the part of the parties, the lawyers, as well as, the, as their clients, to actually have that sort of different mediation. And so sometimes I think that one's missing a trick if one conducts an appellate mediation just like a regular mediation. But sometimes that is what occurs because you just cannot get people to, to, do, to do differently. But I think thinking a little outside the normal mediation box it you know, does make sense. The other suggestion that I would have to people is that whether you go to, it, well, is, is it you use as your mediator someone who understands appellate law. Appellate mediation is too specialized and niche a thing for there to be full-time appellate mediators, and I'm not aware of any. But you can have, you know, an appellate justice, or you can have, you know, an appellate lawyer like myself who also does mediations, but you want to have somebody who, who, who gets it because they're more likely to be focused in on things like the standards of review. They're more likely to be focused on the kind of just the whole, you know, the, the likely way in which an appeal is, is, is going to be played out. So just going to a regular mediator um, and asking him or her to do an appellate mediation might not be the best idea. I mean, obviously, I've got a vested interest in saying that since I do appellate mediations, but I think, but I think it actually does make sense. Well, and you've got a business background too. Some of the best mediators are uh, are those who have a business background and can kind of see beyond uh, beyond just the the legal issues and to finding practical solutions that you otherwise might not be able to get in a judgment. And to your point, having a mediator who also understands the uh, the nuances of appellate procedure and standards of review and the rest. Yeah, I'll, I'm happy to give you a commercial for for appellate mediation services as having appellate specialty and uh, and a business background. But oddly, oddly though. Sometimes when I've gone to the, you know, I'm on the second district panel, 
But when I've gone to that court as a lawyer wanting take, taking part in the mediation, some of the people on their panel in the past, at least, I'm not sure whether that's still the case now, have not only not been appellate lawyers, they haven't even been lawyers. They're, they're just kind of mediators, kind of in the abstract. And, you know, that, you know, maybe maybe they can do an effective job, but I kind of think that that, you know, isn't ideal. And that's one of the drawbacks of going to a court, a, a court arranged mediation. I mean, the benefit of doing that is that, you know, somebody else is setting it up for you and you get X number of free hours. The drawback, though, is you don't get to pick your mediator. And, you know, just like, I mean, half the dentists in this country are by definition below average in their skills. So half the mediators are below average in their skills. I mean, that's just a numerical necessity. Whereas, so if you pick your own mediator, and, and you, 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 you get to choose. And I think some of, the, some of the kind of big mediation programs like JAMS and whatever, they kind of, if you go through their website, they, they kind of, you know, have people who are assigned to appellate mediation as a skill set. Typically, they'd be retired justices. All right. So we covered nuts and bolts of appellate mediation. We covered some, some real high level stuff, theory about uh, appellate mediation. I got my dig in against unpublished decisions and the no citation rule. So Jeff, what uh, what's left to make this a complete outing? Oh, I don't know about a complete outing, but I did have a question for you, John. During COVID, you were doing uh, mediations via Zoom with the end of COVID in sight, hopefully. Do you anticipate continuing doing mediations by Zoom or are you going to try to do them in person again? I think it'll be a, a mixture of the two, but I'm actually a bit of a f- fan of Zoom mediations. I think I was going to say very little is lost, but I, I'm going to correct myself. And I'm going to say, I personally think that nothing is lost and something can be gained. Uh, what can be gained is the fact that it's sometimes easier to pe- keep people in the, in the proverbial room if it is a virtual room than it is to keep people sort of cooped up once the mediation, which begins in the morning, continues into the afternoon in a suite of conference rooms. People are more likely to mediate if they don't have to travel a great distance sometimes, and and that can help. I think the whole system of virtual breakout rooms is just very, very efficient. People are sometimes more relaxed because while the mediator is in one is in the other side's breakout room, kind of the lawyer can be kind of doing useful stuff rather than just kind of, you know, waiting. It doesn't um, have to be so expensive for the client. client. Yeah, I'm sorry? It doesn't have to be so expensive for the client necessarily if the lawyer can do other things. Exactly. So, you know, on a personal level, you know, I I quite like doing mediations at the Court of Appeal in Los Angeles. They, if If you have a court mediation there, they they lay on this quite nice suite of conference rooms and the mediator gets to park in the in, in the in the judge's car park and things like that. So I, I quite enjoy actually going to the Court of Appeal to do mediations and I'm looking forward to going back there. They haven't yet uh, reopened that suite of conference rooms. But at the same time, I think Zoom, I think, is, is here to stay, at least in part. Well, what do you think, Jeff? Well, I'm a little bit torn. Uh, I love Zoom appearances. I think there's a real access to justice issue in terms of costs and expenses. Not all my clients are Fortune 200 companies, so it affords greater options. On the other hand, I can think of a few cases, one in particular where uh, mediator Jeff Kachavin, you know, locked me and my parties in a building to like midnight 
downtown LA and got us to settle a case, which I think it would have been a lot easier to switch off of Zoom at nine o'clock at night. So I'm torn. Yeah. And I can remember a case like that as well, which be, it began off in the Court of Appeal conference rooms. And then I think they eventually booted us out there at uh, five five o'clock in the afternoon or something. And then we we we, we went to one of the lawyer's offices to down, downtown and and we were there till 11 o'clock at night. So, so, so yes, I mean, I'm also a bit torn. So I think, I think the, the way forward is to have both. And some cases will be better off with Zoom. Some might be better off in person. I did one uh, a couple of weeks ago where, which did settle. It was, and, you know, one party was in New York. Uh, the other was in California. I'm not even sure they would have had a mediation in the yeah. olden days. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, on a similar vein, in terms of oral argument, I sure hope the second district keeps uh, a video argument option open in terms of the access to justice issue. I think there's some parties who just can't afford or won't pay or won't choose to have argument if they got to do it in person. I, I, I agree. The My concern, though, is that some courts which kind of don't particularly like video appearances you know you might you might have some, one party turning up in person and then the other party are kind of on a screen and it's a bit uneven especially if the part who the person who's doing it by zoom can't kind of read the body language of the people on the bench or something like that so i think i think if you're going to have i think you should either have both sides doing it by zoom or neither side doing it by zoom i certainly as a lawyer wouldn't feel comfortable doing it by zoom if the other party if my if my opponent was in court and that's one reason why i never do telephone arguments even when they're allowed right right yeah you pick up a lot of the video interesting okay well look you survived the hardest part uh, of our interview. Now we're going to do the easy part. You're going to participate, if you don't mind, in our uh, patented, copyrighted lightning round, which is a, a series of uh, short questions that are the most vexing, important questions that concern appellate nerds around the world. Give us a short one word or one sentence uh, answer, if you can. And uh, here we go. For your briefs that you prepare in your one-man office, font preference, Century Schoolbook, Garamond, or something else? Georgia. Um, Georgia. It, it's the most cross-platform font there is. I find it highly readable. And, you know, Century School Book, you know, if you spend all day long reading Century School Book documents, wouldn't you like something that looks a bit different, but which isn't Times New Roman? Yeah, interesting. We've had 32 uh, episodes here. We've never had anybody say Georgia, I don't think. Interesting. <laughs> Including our Georgia appellate attorney that showed up here. You know, <laughs> he didn't recommend it. Almost important of, as important of a question. After a period, two spaces or one? One. That, that should be written into law. It should be. Pled, P-L-E-D, or pleaded, P-L-E-A-D-E-D. Pled, I think. Yeah. I don't feel so strongly on that one, but I think pled. Yeah, you're right there. And then you've got to ask uh, our Oxford uh, alum about the comma. Yeah, it's not on my list here, but I guess I will ask him. Uh, do you believe in the Oxford comma? Well, I'll tell you this. As somebody who spent three years of my life in Oxford, and I've never heard the phrase the Oxford comma until I came to the United States. It's a bit It's a bit like when uh, Americans talk about English muffins. They refer to a type <laughs> of big good, which has got no equivalent in, in England. That having been said, I didn't used to use what you call the Oxford comma. But as with certain aspects of my life in the United States, I've now gone native and I have started <laughs> to use the so-called Oxford comma. Are you telling us the Oxford comma is an American innovation? It, it, it is. It is, I believe. It certainly isn't the norm in England. And 
it certainly wouldn't be called the Oxford comma. Well, that is a that's a great instance of cross pollinate pollination yeah. between our two peoples. Indeed. What, what do they what do they call it? The col- the colonies comma? What do they call it uh, over there? <laughs> what are your answers to? Um... I, I'm I'm lazy. I tend not to use them mostly as an oversight. And Tim is uh, decidedly pro Oxford. Yeah, what are you comma. charging by the comma? Yeah, you have to <laughs> yeah. pry the Oxford comma from my cold dead fingers. All right. And final question. You know, for major argument headings in your brief, do you go full caps, all capital letters, or do you do initial caps or just sentence cap? What do you do with your uh, big headings and arguments? Okay. So the only things I use for full caps would be the top level heading, you know, introduction, procedural history, statement of facts, argument, so, and conclusion. So they, they get all caps. Everything else and I've slightly changed my system uh, only in the past month because it's a constant process of refinement in, in, in the way I work. After many years of having two levels of, of, of heading, where you'd have the higher level heading being upper and lower, I've now gone to all lower because I just oh. never managed to work out a good, consistent protocol for what's upper and what's lower. And then I just thought, you know, damn it, I'm going to stop stressing about this and make everything upper and lower. But slightly expanding on your question, the layout of my briefs is different from a number of people's. For example, I I center certain types of headings, top level headings in an argument. But the the main point, the main difference for me from most others is I don't do the stuff of having, you know, Roman numerals and kind of letters and complicated things. Because if I'm on page 15 of a brief, and I see a section which has a kind of a V, like a Roman five. I mean, what does that tell me? Okay, it's five of something, but it's five of what? Is it of the first issue, the second issue, whatever? So I, I use a system where, let's imagine it's a four, the argument is divided into four kind of main issues or sections. I have section one, section two, section three, section four. But then for each subheading, uh, it's 1.1, 1.2, 1.3, and then it's 2.1, 2.2, 2.3. Because that way, when you look at a, at a section heading, you know exactly what it is. This is the third section of the second argument. I, I thought I about doing ask... just that thing for the exact same reason. Yeah. 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 It's, it's a puzzle to me as to why people have this kind of weird section system of i mean it's something which so is that's the way they were taught to do it yeah, yeah. well exactly <laughs> and, you, and the way in which so do they you use in, the decimal system you just use just use arabic number uh, numerals yeah i just use yeah exactly just i don't use roman numerals at all yeah and i also dislike this this business of having levels of the argument becoming in, where the headings are increasingly indented over to the right it just looks <laughs> weird but maybe this is the former publisher in me, is that I want documents to look nice yeah. and to and I think a lot of a lot, a lot a lot of lawyers just give too little appearance to the too too little uh, attach too little importance, I should say, to the appearance of documents. And you should have on your show, maybe you've already thought of it, that guy who wrote that book, Typography for Lawyers, Matthew Butterick, is it? Because he, he he's got lots. I don't agree with all of his of his his approaches. But the point is, he doesn't expect you to agree with all of his points. What he encourages you to do is to think about them. So you make kind of reasoned decisions rather than just adopting something because that's what you were told to do 30 years ago. 
Yeah. Well, and to your point about using sentence case for your headings rather than trying to trying to capitalize some, but not all. Some people capitalize every word. Some people only capitalize selective and everyone has a different rule about it. So it's going to look weird to somebody if you use yeah. some variation, some form of a of a capitalized case. So I, yeah. I agree with you. It's better just to use sentence case because everyone yeah, understands right. what a sentence case is. Yeah. One, one of the worst is when people capitalize names in a brief. I never understand why people do that. Yeah, yeah. You mean all caps in a name? Yeah, exactly. Every time they refer to kind of John Smith or whatever, it's in capital letters. Yeah, it's like shouting, Smith! Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, so John, listen, you know, that numbering, the way you number arguments and you don't have them indented and you do the point two and point three, I'm super interested in that. Maybe we'll adopt that on my firm and you can have control. You can decide right here and now, are we going to call that the Oxford way of numbering or the Derek way of numbering? Well, I'm not not sure that I I think it should be either because... I actually got the idea. There was some district court judge who wrote an article in the oh. Daily Journal about, I don't know, 10 years ago, saying this is ridiculous, the way in which people are numbering their, their, their arguments. Why do you do it this way? I so I got the idea thing. from that person. And I think I might even okay. have his article. So it should be named after him. I'll try and dig it up for you. If you could send us a link, we'll put a link in the uh, show notes about that. I'll, I'll see if I can. Okay. But, All right. Well, have hey. been Andrew Guilford? Yeah, might have been. Might have been. I want to say it was him. All right. Well, you've you know survived the dreaded lightning round congratulations i think that's uh that's all we have for today okay well it's been a pleasure thank you for having me yeah it was wonderful to get to know more about you and what you do and i guess let me just say for audience if you have suggestions for future episodes please email us at info at calpodcast.com and in our upcoming episodes look for tips on how to lay the groundwork for an appeal when preparing for trial thanks see you next time you have just listened to the california appellate podcast a discussion of timely trial tips and the latest cases and news coming from the California Court of Appeal and the California Supreme Court. For more information about the cases discussed in today's episode, our hosts, and other episodes, visit the California Appellate Law Podcast website at calpodcast.com. That's calpodcast.com. Thanks to Jonathan Caro for our intro music. Thank you for listening, and please join us again.